Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book, all right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode 69, It's What I Do, A Photographer's Life of Love and War by Lindsay Adario. Four New York Times journalists were held captive by Gaddafi's troops in Libya for nearly a week. They are all home safe now. Photographer Lindsay Adario was one of them. The group was beaten and threatened with death. Lindsay was sexually assaulted. But she's here now. She joins us this morning along with her husband, Paul de Bendern, who is the bureau chief for Reuters in India. They have become friends of mine. Uh, they've become friends and family to, to so many people during this thing. Lindsay, uh, a warm welcome home to you. Thank you. Uh, you and I talked a few months ago on TV, but Paul and I spoke twice while you were being held captive. And you didn't waver a little bit in your, your absolute view that you were going to see Lindsay again and you were going to hug her and you were going to, uh, you know, you were going to, you were going to get to be together again. He didn't waver a little bit in that. You went through a harrowing experience. What, what was going through your mind while we were talking about you? I think the hardest part is um, knowing that your family doesn't know and Paul didn't know whether I was alive. You know, there were three days when there was no information about our whereabouts. And for us, you know, we were in survival mode. Sure. And all of us were really just trying to maintain our composure. And the hardest part was just knowing that there had been no information given to them and it, in fact the day we arrived in Tripoli they brought us to Tripoli and they didn't realize that that we CNN was actually on the TV yeah. and we saw our own pictures on oh, TV wow. and and we were with all these foreign ministry and defense ministry guys and it was this very sort of you know they were they were giving us tea and it, we had just arrived in Tripoli and we saw our own photos on TV and it said uh, the, the Libyan government can't ascertain, you know, their whereabouts. Right. And I started crying and I said, don't you have children? How can you do this to our families? Right. Don't you have husbands and wives? Can't you just let us make one phone call? So for me, that was the hardest part. Well, I, I don't know how you felt, Paul, the rest of the time, but you, you seemed to be very confident that you are married to somebody who, by the way, has been through this similar uh, instances before, and, and her colleagues who are a tough group that they were going to come through alive wasn't entirely of their own doing. But you, did you, did you waver in your doubt any, in, in your confidence? I, I, I always had a feeling that, that she was fine and that this was, you know, she's been through a lot. She's very smart. She knows how to handle difficult situations. But of course, as time went by, not knowing anything, you know, there was a moment when I kept calling her and her phone was ringing, mm. but there was no answer. Yeah. And, it, and, and then at one point, the, the phone was, you know, somebody was hanging out. Right. So the not knowing for a long time was, was definitely, and, and as time went along, of course, there's the worst thought that you don't want to think about. Sure. You know, have they the car been attacked? Have they are they dead? You know, and but I was always putting that aside and, and thinking of the positive because I felt that it was fine. But of course, three days went by, and those three days, you know, minute by minute, 
an hour by hour was, you know, the worst experience of my life. And we're glad that you're back, but we can't minimize this. You were, you guys were put on the floor, you were face down, you were told, uh, you had heard someone saying, shoot them, uh, you were assaulted by somebody who was rubbing your hair and saying you're going to die tonight. Tell me, tell me what, what these low points were like to you. I think the, fortunately I was with my colleagues because I think um, for me there were moments of complete, not desperation, but you go into a sort of shock where mm -hmm. you're, you, you just say, look, I can handle anything that, that they're doing to me now. But the, the hardest part was the fear of what's to come. You know, how long were they going to keep us? Are they going to keep beating us every day, every day? Are they going to, is it going to be worse when we get to Tripoli? So I was trying to stay in some sort of survival mode. And when it got really bad, um, fortunately, my colleagues would say something to me like, look, there are people who love you. The New York Times is working very hard to get us out. And even though we didn't know that, we hoped that they were. You know, for me to hear those words, I'd be crying and they'd say, you know, Tyler would reach over even with his hands bound. He managed to hold my hand. Wow. You know, those moments were essential. Lindsay, this, is, this sort of thing has happened to you before and it's happened to some of your colleagues who were taken with you. When we talked last year, we talked about the things that you think, the influence you feel you have by taking these remarkably moving photographs and letting the world know about the perils, particularly of women, but of people who, who are in danger. Is it worth it? It's a hard question. I mean, I certainly, in the middle of this, with my, when I was blindfolded and bound and getting punched in the face, I said, why do I do this? Who cares about Libya? Why do I care about Libya? You know, these are questions I ask myself repeatedly. I do it because I believe in it. I do it because I think our policymakers need to have a first-hand view of what's happening on the ground to make informed decisions. I think it's very important, but is it worth my life? Is it worth doing this to the people I love? It's a difficult question. Well, we are very, very happy to be have you back. Thank You're both you. very, very brave people. Thank, Thank you for being you. with us. Thank Lindsay Adario and Paul DeBender, we, uh, we will speak to you again under better circumstances. Thank you. Hello and welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about books, literature, hiking, traveling pilgrimages at least for the past three months it has been and each month we take a thorough look at one particular piece of literature that we've both read and we say whether we like it we say whether it's required reading whether it's worthy of its reputation whether that is positive or negative so i'm here and I don't even know what to say. How, how, how can I even introduce ourselves? I guess I'll be the war-torn photojournalist. And my friend Tom Panarese is with me. And he is my guide through whatever war-torn nation we are traveling through. There Welcome. we go. Hi. <laughs> how are you? Oh, I'm doing okay. Just got back from a lovely 14-day trip to Germany, Switzerland, and Austria, and it felt very appropriate to just, uh, you know, reading this book and, and seeing those different cultures and also being in Europe and experiencing new cultures as well. So it was tiring, but it was so, it was, yeah, worth it. And of course, I just feel uh, my privilege and, and what a blessing to be able to do that with my, my father. Cool. I've been to two of those three countries. I've never been to Austria. Okay. So. But that was, but it was one of the best trips I'd ever taken. Was the first trip to Europe when I was in high school, and then I have been 
to Europe twice more, once in 2000 in Cologne, Germany, for a trade show for the company I was working for, and then on my honeymoon in 2003, we went to Paris. Okay. Was that something that you guys, like, automatically thought, honeymoon Paris, or did you sit down and kind of have a list of certain locales and then decide and kind of whittle it down, and then you decided, oh, you know, we should do Paris for our honeymoon? (sighs) I think we threw some ideas around, including the Caribbean, you know, the kind of the typical honeymoon places. And then we were both like, no, that would be so much fun to just go to Paris and vacation in in like the city, which is one of the things we kind of do when we'll go to a city, you know, and just bum around, you know, hit the highlights and the, and the touristy stuff, but bum around for a few days, mm-hmm. you know, with with some sort of agenda if we have reservations, but not like a full disney as world-esque itinerary so we've done that with um since we started traveling together like uh I, we did it uh, last time we did that was a f- few years ago now in quebec city you know just parked it at the hotel and just walked around and did a couple of museums and stuff so yeah I, I just love taking it in and just being there in 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 a, in a new place like that even if it's in the united states too like new york city for instance which i've been to since I was a little kid on field trips, you know, so, so, or Washington DC, which I lived in, you know? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm totally with you. I very much like the go to start walking and see what I can see. And, Mm -hmm. and oftentimes the highest points of the cities, or at least things you can see just from standing in maybe the center and looking up are church spires. Mm -hmm. And Tom and I were talking about this before we started recording, just, you know, I will go into any church that I see in Europe, which is pretty funny to think about in America, you know, all these churches would be shut down except on Sundays and maybe Wednesdays. So those are, yeah, easy things to see. And then, yeah, just walking around and, and seeing stuff. And normally I am pretty in charge of trips and, and know what I'm doing, but I kind of took the back seat here, which it flip-flopped and I actually did become in charge. But had I been in charge from the beginning, I think I would have had a good idea of, oh, we're going to Salzburg. We should do this, this, and this kind of thing. But otherwise, yeah, just kind of being open to anything that you see or an experience that uh, you might find. And it's easier to do that when you're in a place for more than one day because a lot of the places that we went, we just had one day there and I was like sightseeing for that day. And then you just have to figure out what you're going to be doing. But yeah, so I'm similar to you in that way. Yeah. That was my experience with the city I'd like to go back to, which is Barcelona um, when I was a teenager. And um, we saw the, I saw the Gaudi cathedral, you know, the, the one that's still being built from the bus. So I never really got a chance to, Kind of like you there, or or the one of my favorite things sometimes is the spontaneity of just kind of like walking around and then popping into a store or a restaurant or you know or like something you know just the you know what can we find here so absolutely it's always fun cool well we're I don't think she went to <laughs> this is a hard segue Germany it is a hard segue because you know we Tom and I are talking about happy things and going on holiday and taking her time and taking in the culture, but that is not what Adario does because mm. she has a purpose, very explicit purpose for the places that she's going and the photo- the photographs that she's taking. And for the most part, they are not happy, fun times. There are some fun ones, but yes, yeah, so we're going to be doing this. Whew! Tom, I guess, yeah, we'll just say, what, what is your history with It's What I Do? 
Oh well, this is this is my history. I actually hadn't even heard of the book until you um, you chose it for the for the for the podcast. So yeah, I had not heard. So this is my history as well. I had not heard of it. Once Tom had said for his previous episode that he was going to do a male figure on a pilgrimage. I had asked, you know, would it be annoying if if I pick a female again? And and Tom was okay with it. So I wanted to do a female-led one. And I had Google searched and looked, you know, what are some good travel logs or or tales? And I had found a good site that went through several female-led memoirs and had good reasons. And, you know, there there would be the the ones you would expect, like Mm -hmm. that Under the Tuscan Sun was one. Mm -hmm. Eat, pray, love. Yes, eat, pray, love. And I thought, oh, you know, I wouldn't have expected that. I think the book is probably better than the film. But there were two that I had seen that seemed interesting, just of like strong, independent women. And I did not really care for the one that I read. And then I read this one. It was just so powerful that I thought this would be good. And I also thought that it it was it it's a stark contrast to your idea of pilgrimage, kind of peace and everything, Mm -hmm. whereas the majority of what we see certainly are nations at war. And, you know, humans just being in in really unfortunate situations. So, yeah, this won't won't necessarily be the most uplifting of tales, but I I think that it is worthwhile. So I guess we'll get into, yeah, who this woman is and then, of course, the synopsis as well. Okay, Lindsay Adario is an American photojournalist living in the UK. Her work often focuses on conflicts and human rights issues, especially the role of women in traditional societies. And of course, her book here was published in 2015. So she graduated from the University of Wisconsin in Madison in 1995 and began photographing professionally in 96. She started with the Buenos Aires Herald in Argentina and then began freelancing for the Associated Press with Cuba as a focus. Starting in 2000, she began photographing life in Afghanistan under Taliban control and has since covered conflicts in Afghanistan, Iraq, Darfur, the Congo, and Haiti. She has covered stories throughout the Middle East and Africa, visiting Darfur or neighboring Chad at least once a month from August 2004. She's photographed for the New York Times, New York Times Magazine, Time, Newsweek, and National Geographic. In Pakistan on May 9, 2009, Adario was involved in an automobile accident while returning to Islamabad from an assignment at a refugee camp. Her collarbone was broken, another journalist was injured, and the driver was killed. Adario was one of four New York Times journalists who went missing in Libya from March 16th to the 21st of 2011. On March 18th, the Times reported that Libya had agreed to free all four. Adario, as well as Anthony Shadid, Stephen Farrell, and Tyler Hicks, they were released three days later. Adario reports that she was threatened with death and mistreated. Physically... We Oh, I think this is a quote. Physically, we were blindfolded and bound. In the beginning, our hands and feet were bound very tightly behind our backs, and my feet were tied with shoelaces. I was blindfolded most of the three, first three days, with the exception of the first six hours. I was punched in the face a few times and groped repeatedly. End quote. She called her treatment incredibly intense and violent. It was abusive throughout, both psychologically and physically. 
Later that year, in November 2011, the New York Times wrote a letter of complaint on behalf of Adario to the Israeli government after allegations that Israeli soldiers at the Erez crossing had strip-searched and mocked her and forced her to go through an x-ray scanner three times despite knowing that she was pregnant. Adario reported that she had, quote, never, ever been treated with such blatant cruelty, end quote. The Israeli Defense Ministry subsequently issued an apology to both Adario and the New York Times. Family-wise, she is married to Paul De Bendern, a journalist with Reuters. I think he's also... Isn't he a count, if I remember correctly? I he believe has some so, sort of yes. Some sort of, <laughs> yes. Some yes. position. Yes, and she has several... She has a few relationships, which I, I think we'll probably be talking about. They married in 2009 and have a son who was born in 2011. And awards, she is the recipient of multiple awards, including the MacArthur Fellowship in 2009. Her work in Waziristan on September 2008 was part of work receiving the Pulitzer Prize in 2009 for international reporting. She won the Getty Images Grant for editorial photography in 2008 for her work in Darfur. And she received the Infinity Award in 2002 by the International Center of Photography. And all that was... Taken from Wikipedia, just so I can source everything. So here's the plot synopsis. This was taken. From, <laughs> this was taken from Super Summary, which is, and I quote, a modern alternative to Cliff Notes and Spark Notes. End quote. Now I did not go further in to well, see whether it lives up to modern that. Modern alternative. <laughs> I don't know. But like, what what makes Cliff notes and spark notes so ancient that I not couldn't tell you iris you don't have to decipher hieroglyphics it's freaking yeah. cliff notes. i would only say that that descriptor works if cliff notes never came to the internet if it was only the yellow and black soft paper books but they have so i have no idea a modern alternative i don't know okay so in her memoir it's what i do Lindsay Adario, an American photojournalist and activist, draws from her wealth of experience covering war in the Middle East, the Mediterranean, and Africa to provide a personal account of life in the war-torn and politically fraught regions she has covered. Punctuating her story with images taken from sites of conflict, Adario provides an inside look at places that ordinary Americans, even through mass media, rarely see. She also recalls several key traumatic events in her life, from seeing violent rebel uprisings to deadly car bombs to terrorist incursions. Despite the serious, often morose subject matter, Adario depicts her life in the Middle East and her profession as a love affair, affirming the necessary social role of the photojournalist. And I just wanted to at least go through the parts, read off what the parts were and where she is in the different parts, and then I'll continue with the synopsis. So in part one, which she has subtitled Discovering the World, technically there's a prelude, but we'll get back to that anyways. Uh, we see Connecticut, New York, Argentina, Cuba, India, and Afghanistan. Part two, subtitled The 9-11 Years, she's in Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Iraq. Part three, A Kind of Balance, the Sudan, Congo, Istanbul, Afghanistan, Pakistan, France, and Libya. And part four, Life and Death, Libya, New York, India, and London. 
Adario begins with a brief summary of her childhood, which was unusual by any standards. When she was a young girl, her father gifted her a Nikon camera. Adario recalls this formative moment as the point where she started to think in images, wondering how the process of creating the image could be mastered to accurately reflect the riches of her lived experience. She describes a bitter divorce between her parents that affected her greatly, inaugurating a coming-of-age characterized by depression, anxiety, and poverty as her mother struggled with being a single parent. When Adario went to study abroad in Bologna, she realized that photography is a universal art form, applicable to any object and in any social context. After her schooling was finished, she decided to become a freelance photojournalist. Adario's foray into photojournalism Adario's foray into photojournalism was quickly met with turbulence as she entered zones of conflict that produced images she could never have imagined, even with her global education. She was ambushed by kidnappers not once but twice and survived situations where bullets were flying from the air. She recalls one particular experience where a Taliban cohort tried to kill her on the job. Each of these events only briefly instilled doubt and fear in Adario as she learned more of the necessary political function of photography in conflict zones. She witnessed instances where her work had a clear emotional effect on American policymakers, galvanizing them to legislate for peace rather than perpetuate armed conflict and, by extension, political atrocities. Adario's memoir contains nearly a hundred images she took in the Mediterranean and the Middle East. Many of them are haunting, comprising snapshots of the experiences of death, disease, refugeeism, and social alienation. She provides brief character sketches of the people she met, from a young Kurdish taxi driver who expressed feeling cloistered in his nation, to conservative Afghan women who wait at the hospital for the prognosis of an injured loved one. These sketches are left incomplete, making clear that Adario conceives of the image as always insufficient in transmitting experience, but always aspiring to transmit it as well as possible. Though Adario is experienced in photographing moments of intensity, she also conveys the value of photographing the emotions, beauties, and horrors of, quote, ordinary life. She speaks about people traveling through war-torn regions to document its interior who lack the support of a powerful government or news syndicate and are thrown into danger without the consent a phonojournalist gives. In one difficult moment, Adario recounts being forced by Israeli soldiers to go through an x-ray scanner three times in a row in the midst of a pregnancy and then strip-searched anyway just because she was Palestinian. Uh, I don't know about that right there. Anyways, Adaro uses her personal humiliation to speak to the injustice she constantly sees being committed to innocent people around her. In the latter part of the book, Adario recounts moving from the Middle East to cover Africa around 2004. She moved throughout the Congo, capturing images of brutal Rwandan soldiers who instigated cultures of rape and formed small terroristic fascist regimes. Most of her images depict the women who fell at their mercy. For example, she recalls experiences with Rwandan women who were raped by Rwandan soldiers only to face rejection from their husbands for being ravaged. The moral stigma against women who are routinely turned into scapegoats for the consequences of strife is, to Adario, the most powerful takeaway from her life as a photojournalist. At the end of her memoir, Adario writes an exhortation to American political leaders to look at more images from the sites where they exert power. She believes photojournalism is unique in showing how images refer to experiences that are made possible by seemingly remote regimes of power. Moreover, she shows that photography always suggests possibilities of peace and happiness that these same regimes have foreclosed or foregone.
Adario exhorts her audience to examine their own livelihoods and decide for themselves whether the images they see are the best ones they can envision and make real. Thank you, Super Summary, for that. I think she, I, her father's Italian. So I was a bit, yeah, yeah that. Whole, I don't know about her mother, but but like yeah. her, her dad, her, like she has a whole paragraph when she's talking about her dad, about how um, her grandmother or her great-grandmother came over through Ellis Island from Italy, so. Yeah, I would have said instead of Palestinian that she was American. That's yeah. That's why they would have stopped her. And she was asking, could you please not send me through the x-ray machine? And then it was just like a big, big old joke to them. Yeah, and, and I mean, like, so she has... An olive complexion, so maybe she yes. looked Palestinian would have been. Yeah, so I was just a little confused there. So, But I flipped through it while you were looking just to see if I could clear that up. So. Yeah. Okie dokie. So, Tom, the mm. big question. Nah, one of our bigger questions. Did you like this book? Yeah, I, this book was fascinating. You know, I, I, I love photojournalism in general. I haven't taught journalism in a good decade and a half at this point, but... I used to love doing the photojournalism unit because we got to look through old photos from like time and life and stuff and, and famous photos of, of famous events in history. And um, I've always been a, a mark for a good photo essay or, or old life magazines or National Geographics and things like that. In fact, on my other show, I'm doing a, an episode about um, photo books that are about America and across America. Uh, at the moment, but yeah, this was—it was just—it was, just, was fascinating, not just because of the of the work that she did, but like the stories behind everything and how um, how treacherous this this occupation can be. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I really really enjoyed this. Yeah, I think. Well, let me just say one of my—I think we agree on this actually. One of my mm-hmm. favorite museums, perhaps my favorite museum in Washington D.C. May mm-hmm. it rest in peace, because it's gone now. Is the museum. Yeah. And one of my favorite exhibits there, because it stayed there, was, I believe, covers for Times Magazine. Mm-hmm. Or Pul- I think they were Pulitzer Prize winning photographs. Mm-hmm. Do you remember this exhibit? Vaguely. Okay. It's been a very long time. That's okay. So, And they were just so moving. And some mm-hmm. of them were so hard to look at. And I remember... There, there were several of them that are really hard to look at, but one of them that I'll always remember is this really malnourished African child, probably a toddler, very young, like in a fetal position, and there's a a carrion, like a bird, a carrion, very close to the child because the carrion believes that the child's going to die. Mm-hmm. And by all of these photos, there's of course information about you know what this photo was and then perhaps also the photographer would say something and i remember the photographer was just racked with guilt because he can't you know you don't intervene in this what you're doing and so he he just wanted to pick that child up um but he got the photo so wondering what that is like and seeing those images of course and they all tell a different story there's not much context with it besides the little placard but now going into this where you've got the actual 
artist or, you know, the photographer, the photojournalist talking about her experiences, pairing them with the, the photographs was really interesting and getting more mm. context too. And it's not just this like objective you, but what was she doing at the time? What did she think about what she was doing at the time? That kind of stuff. So I wasn't sure when, <laughs> when I went into this and picked this book, of course it was, it was just a leap, but I'm glad I took that leap because I, I very much enjoyed this book. So, yeah. And it was, um, it's of recent vintage, so it's of more contemporary conflicts and things because the war photography that I'm most familiar with is stuff that's much, much older, like Alfred Eisen, Alfred Eisenman's or Eisenstadt, Eisenstadt, I think is his last name's like World War II photos or um, like Dorothea Lange's photos of the concentration camps after they were liberated and she also did a lot of photos about the depression kind of Lindsay Adario reminds me of what I've seen out of Dorothea Lange whose most famous photo is the migrant mother uh the depression era photo um and if you google migrant mother you, you like you'll see the photo you're like oh yeah that photo um and then I think of like when I was doing in country and looking at um Eddie Adams photo of the assassination of uh of a, v, of a VC kid uh by one of those Saigon police um, you know, that famous photo where the guys are pulling the trigger and basically blowing the kid's brains out or the or something that also uh, speaks to a lot of like what we're seeing in this book, uh, the napalm girl photo from um, right. Nick, Nick, yep. Ut, I believe is the name of the photographer from Vietnam. And that is actually a case of of um, when you read the story about what he did is like he put the camera down eventually and it had to help. It was like, I have to help the people around here because they were just it, it was just. This, this horrific situation they were in. So having known and, and looked at a lot of that stuff coming into this, I was like, Oh, this is like where we've been for the last 20 years, mostly. Cause a lot of this takes place over the last 20, 25 years. I liked how we got to see the more personal sides of people who have been shown to us through the media as sort of just faceless groups in a sense or impersonal groups. Um, and very often not so, um, depending on the news you're watching, not always in the most uh, flattering light either, mm-hmm. you know? So. Absolutely. Yeah. And also getting to know, which, which we're definitely going to talk about, what it is like to be a photojournalist or just a journalist in mm-hmm. some of these situations because I didn't know <laughs> kind of some of the stuff, the emotional toll that it actually takes on them and, and what they – used to kind of escape that so Mm -hmm. we'll definitely talk about that well i do want to talk about the image this i i said to tom wait were we recording when i said this that there's one question that i am baiting him (laughs) because i know how he'll react but i do wonder i mean obviously there are photographs in this book and Uh the we've got like trade paperback pages right because so it actually yeah they're feels glossy like, a photograph. like oh wow yeah yeah absolutely so i just wonder about the you her use of photographs in this book versus our beloved incredibly wait what? oh god <laughs> do you feel like uh it's yeah it's successful because she could have there are long segments of just words and no photographs do you feel Mm -hmm. like she uses enough photographs to bring around her points 
do you feel like there were sections where you wanted a photograph? And yeah, I mean, that, that was the only other book that I think we've read that had to do, like images had to, quote unquote, had to do with the, the subject and the, the narration and everything. Ugh. Is this more successful than Extremely Loud and Critically You Close? know I'm going to say yes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, because um, this, is, this is her work. Mm-hmm. And um, we're getting her stories behind these photographs. Not only that, she's getting very personal and she's talking about her relationship to the subject. And I think she's giving them respect and compassion. Mm -hmm. She genuinely cares about the people she encounters and she genuinely wants this to show the individual cost of the wars that are in there. And, and they're very true, uh, you know, and, and she's doing her job as a reporter. So I think they're vital to the book, especially since she's a photojournalist, you know. Yeah. What I really liked about actually was this is just going to kind of get very, uh, you know, get a little bit publication nerd here. I liked how they were integrated throughout the book as opposed to just being kind of in little sections. Mm-hmm. So and, and this was something I don't know if they do this as much anymore. Um but I was reading, um, I was reading a book a little while ago. It was Peter Jenkins, A Walk Across America. And he would tell the story, tell the story. And then you'd have a section of like black and white photographs that went on for like, I don't know, four or five pages. And they related to things that were just like that you just told about it, but it might have been like four chapters prior. And then there was like a section of color photos and another section of color photos. It was almost like, you know, the, a lot of those books sometimes they'll, they'll drop a section of color glossy photos in the yeah. middle of it. And, you, and it's like from anywhere else in the book before or after. She didn't do that here. <laughs> she used the, the glossy heavier stock paper so that we could mm-hmm. see the color photos. And I think that laying it out like that where you would have – the photos in proximity to the stories in a way that was immediate, I think really served the book well and helped tell the story as opposed to just being kind of, Oh, well, this is what it looked like or an accompaniment. I I thought I I really, really appreciated that about this book. Yeah, I agree. I think we've probably read our fair share of books where there are just in the center of the book, mm-hmm. maybe. Yeah, maybe, and they're fascinating know. pictures, but you yeah, know, you have five to, go to ten pictures, yeah. but yeah, but this is great because absolutely, she might be talking about something in particular, like maybe you know that that young boy who, mm-hmm. which will be our cover photo after the bomb blast, and you can't really imagine. I mean, you can kind of think in your mind's eye what it is because that's part of what it is to read books and love them is that you are thinking to yourself, oh, this is how I imagine it. But then to actually see her place that, I, I think is is all the more powerful. So you can almost compare like what what do you imagine versus what was reality um, or what what she saw through the lens and everything. So I I definitely agree with you in my baiting question that <laughs> this is more successful than a bunch of pictures of doorknobs. But I I'm glad that she I mean she is I would say like an amazing photographer so to see that in action and some of them are you know i would say like messy by some of our standards you know because you have the blur but it shows like the action of what what they're going through and so i kind of like that there are some of these with you know what someone might call like a flaw i I think that there's a lot of beauty and interest and and dynamism and a lot of her photography so 
Absolutely. It, yeah, we'd be missing something, just to say that if we didn't have this. You actually brought up something that I wanted to talk about that you, let's see, on page 36, she says, while I was working for the Herald, I went to see an exhibition of Sebastião Salgado's work, enormous images of impoverished workers around the world who toiled under harrowing conditions. The photos were an enigma to me. How had he captured his subject's dignity? And I thought that was a really interesting question from her, and I carry that with me throughout the rest of her memoir. And I wondered, I guess is my question, do you feel like she was able to do that? Was she able to accomplish that? And in the photos that we see, as well as the stories that she tells, does she capture her subject's dignity? And I think you were kind of starting to get at that when you were talking, when you are answering the previous question. I think she does. Um, I think she does it through myriad approaches. Um, the simple, I think on some level, the simple act of, you know, showing respect through the photograph of who they are, publishing not just, you know, the stereotypical image of, I don't know, um, rebels in Libya or whatever, but, you know, showing them, you know, in combat, but also in pain. I think there's a bit of dignity that comes with that, you know, mm -hmm. because of the because of the human side of it. Not too far after her, because I got the book up in front of me, not too far after this, uh, this line, you have a series of photographs of transgender sex workers yep. in New York city. And it's not vulgar or exploitative. It's just simply like, um, it's, it's these little, almost like these little moments of them, you know, one girl doing her lipstick, another one having her hair looked at, you know, and, and just these, these little snapshot moments and it reflects the way that when she talks about kind of just hanging out with them and taking pictures of them mm -hmm. and then how they got to know her there. Uh, and I think that that comes through the pictures. Absolutely. Do you feel like uh, this was another question of just from her, her upbringing and her history and her profession before 9-11 do you feel like this might have been one of the sections that could have helped her? I mean, it seems kind of like, how are you connecting that? But, yeah, working with uh, these women on the street, do you feel like that helped her when she was during the 9-11 years because she was able to have connections or make connections with people that were kind of on the inside? I think so, because like you said, like we mentioned in her bio, uh, one of her first assignments was she's like an Argent working with the Argentinian press over in Cuba. Mm -hmm. and getting and one of the you know we have an early photo in the book of, of a family in cuba so it was the idea of embedding oneself in there and the ability to go to different places and get in with people who or, or just either make friends or just embed oneself with different people from different walks of life in different places you know there's a a long way between family in Cuba, uh, transgender uh, sex workers in New York, and very conservative Muslim family in Afghanistan. I mean, you couldn't mm -hmm. think, I could see things that I couldn't think of that were more different from one another, right? right? Yet she easily begins to learn those like best practices in her field of like, and, and, and working those interpersonal relationships, um, which... I would imagine is like really, really important in that field. And I don't know if she's better at it than anybody else 
if you know or how how she compares to other people but she seems to really really have a, a knack for doing that and i, I think it, it 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 shows absolutely and i think you perhaps the most successful photojournalist and journalist also leaves assumptions and judgments at the door like you just mm-hmm. cannot pack them in your baggage because i think that would change the lens and then also i think people pick up on that so if she had some sort of judgment about um these transgender sex workers and going in i think that they would not trust her you know and i think the same going over to the middle east where she is able to create some of these relationships with people where you wouldn't expect that to happen i think you mentioned mohammed in in a later question Mm -hmm. um inside was that the visa office or something it was like like the visa office or one of the embassies in in afghanistan she just kind of like hung out with him absolutely yeah and made made friends with the guy not yeah so not having judgments but i feel like it's not the same necessarily as being objective so i do wonder if you feel like a photojournalist or just a journalist should be objective in the field and do you mostly see lindsay as being objective or are there some times where maybe she's not objective in what she's capturing i think she's coming at it from a more objective lens than other journalists might uh, especially those with an agenda um you know we've seen a number of times where journalists in quotes attend a rally or a gathering and they try to kind of do an ambush job on some of the people who are there or or they're you know they're looking they're looking for that thing that's gonna be the you know they're looking for the guy who's going to throw the rock through the window you know at at a so-called peaceful protest things like that they're looking for you know and and i i i don't get that feeling from her Mm -hmm. having an angle is different than having a bias too and I, i think that's something that in general the public doesn't necessarily i don't think it's a distinction the public necessarily makes sometimes because an angle is an approach in terms of what you're looking for in terms of what's necessary to the story that you're filing this for or the main event of it. Um, sometimes the angle might be through the lens of the writer or the editor who picks the photography to go along with the story. You know, there, there's, there's so many different ways you can come up with it. Um, a bias is personal beliefs and politics and things that cloud your judgment of what you're going to shoot and what you don't. Mm-hmm. Now, I guess there are biases in that, and that her compassion creates a bias and that she wants to, shed some humanity on the people who are living under the rule of the Taliban, um, people who are fighting wars in regions like Libya or Iraq or something that humanizes them a little more. And I guess there are people over on certain cable news networks who would not like seeing that because it makes, it chips away at their, the racism that they use going into reporting those stories. So, so maybe I'm a little biased in seeing this and saying though, like, no, you are doing the great work that we expect from journalists. So maybe my bias is coming in. Well, yeah, it's interesting. I guess anyone could say, anything might have you know a bias Mm -hmm. um i think even that one for forgive me that i read this like two months ago and then (laughs) i went on my trip and then i read another book so it's like i'm trying to pull everything together but i think it was that that little boy was almost going to be a cover image 
mm-hmm. they were but the people who were going to take it as a cover like chain had changed something and she was fighting against it and then they ended up scrapping it it was either that one or another one mm-hmm. but just i feel like showing everything you know in all of its uh brutality or beauty that's honest and true and mm-hmm. I don't think, I mean, I think someone could be like, well, that's biased because you'd like shot it out of context and we don't know what's going on with that kid. But I don't, I feel like that's what she mostly does is yeah. look at what's happening. You're right. She doesn't wait for a Molotov to be thrown. She's mm-hmm. seen the before, the during and the after of that Molotov, like that, that whole context. I think the only time I saw any is not even in her photography, but in uh, there were a couple sections where she mentioned she as well as some other people that she was with were confused about the 90 uh, about basically the war in Iraq that this was a bit confusing and they didn't think that it was just so I think those were the only times but those were also like her own personal thoughts and they weren't I don't think coming out in her photography because she was showing both the U.S. side as well as the other side in that particular conflict but I think we can probably agree that she might be more left-leaning given the publications that she's with Mm. but certainly i i didn't disagree necessarily with anything i i I don't think she ever said anything that was like whoa that's super you know one-sided kind of thing but yeah and we shouldn't and again like like in one hand there's an angle that she's shooting from Mm -hmm. both you know figuratively speaking because that's the angle that she was sent to pursue and you should we shouldn't we should i don't think we should also confuse compassion with bias too i think that's another thing it's just this you know it's it's just it's it's with the the word bias is thrown around as a way of attack because you know you're just printing something i don't like to see Mm -hmm. or revealing a truth that i don't want revealed uh right around the time that she's taking a lot of these photos a photographer and i believe her name was like tracy sicario i think i know her first name is tracy i might be biffing on the last name was embedded with troops in Iraq, and she took photographs of coffins draped with American flags in the cargo hold of a plane that was headed back to the United States and got in trouble for it because since the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, the United States government had an embargo on such photos. You were not allowed to take them. They were restricting the freedom of the press to show it because it was demoralizing for the troops. You know, And again, that's something that... Um, and, and eventually that, that, that ban got lifted. I think it got lifted in the Obama administration. But like the first, the, both Bush administrations were like, no, you can't show photos of, of soldiers coming home in coffins because it's, and they, they tried the disrespectful angle and everything. But going back to what I know about the history of the Vietnam War, the things that started to turn the tide in public opinion were the real photographs of what was happening to the soldiers over there, mm-hmm. especially when the government was basically lying to the public. So, you know, if the journalist is doing their duty and reporting, somebody is going to say they have bias because they're just simply reporting something that they don't want seen. You know, so which is the unfortunate thing that she's a photojournalist as well as this is going to be true of journalists, period, Mm -hmm. is that there's an editor. So even you are not the last person to see what you have done. So even though she is capturing this truth, 
people, the people, the higher ups can choose not to use that or can can sort of bend it to to fit their agenda, depending on what it is, too. Yes. So that's yeah, it's not taint. It's it is tainted. It's not completely pure, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, man. OK, let us back up a bit. And you had asked, I believe that her uh, book is mostly about her career, but she goes into a lot of detail about her upbringing. Why is that? How much of it, such as her parents' divorce and her father's sexuality, affected her? Yeah, this was, I mean, it was an interesting chapter. So it's not like I thought, like, oh, why do I have to read this? But I was curious as to, aside from where the roots were for her curiosity and her desire to become a photojournalist, where her father leaving her mother for another man, them getting divorced, her mother raising the kids because her dad ran off with Bruce to New York City. I would imagine that helped with her being a free spirit. And I would imagine that when she gets into the relationships that she does over the course of her her life and career, because like her personal life is part of this book as well. I think, you know, not to, not to armchair psychoanalyze her, but perhaps that there's, she's showing the connection between that and, and her, um, rather messy relationships with men here and there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I was just kind of curious as to what impact it did have on her. Yeah, that's a, it's a good question because as a memoir, you might not necessarily need it. If, mm-hmm. You know, just focusing on the purpose, I think, of this book, but, I think history, you know, history certainly informs who you are. So I think potentially, given her background, this reminds me a bit of Wild, mm-hmm. just because of her upbringing as well was not the best. Uh, it was not, I guess, standard as to what we imagine children go through. But perhaps it it allows her to feel compassion and empathy for some of her subjects whereas if she had a posh upbringing it might have been hard to leave that judgment at the door so yeah her father's sexuality perhaps there's that connection there then with the the transgender sex workers maybe she's able to feel more of an emotional connection with them visiting all those poverty-stricken areas and the women especially and being raised by a single mother. So perhaps it's some of these places she's able to see. And I, I know what I'm saying. Like, it seems like, a you know, you've got this woman who is American versus this other stuff. But I think, you know, we can see pieces of ourselves in some of these really dire situations. And that's what allows us to feel empathy and compassion for them. And I think that's the best part of being human is able to connect with someone who looks so different or who lives in a different way. So I, th- I think it's important, you know, especially the Nikon. And I think maybe we mm-hmm. start to get a sense also of what it's like, how she views the world too, not just through the lens, but how she's kind of uh, picturing everything. And then that helps her get into the lens. Mm-hmm. So I feel like it is important. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if, if I if I answered well enough to no, say, I think you did. To say how or why. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. And it's also interesting to, I think, have, again, this contrast between, you know, this Connecticut living and, some, you know, she's in New York sometimes as well versus, oh, now she's in South America, she's in the Middle East, she's in Africa. So to have that 
uh, contrast. And that would potentially draw your readers in. She did have a prologue, of course, very similar to Wild, where it starts off at, at a very kind of um, emotional high moment. But readers will best understand, you know, what it might be like to live in Connecticut or New York, and they're not going to understand as much taking pictures in the condo or Rwanda or something like that. So yeah. perhaps it's also a way to grab people's attention, of course, when she's been kidnapped uh, or taken hostage, I guess is the better phrase. And then, oh, well, you know, I'm American. This is what it was my upbringing. And then, and then show what it was like after that. So maybe it's a help to the, to the reader. Yeah. No, I think that's a good point. Okay, so another quote she had, which I thought was very interesting. I'm on page 304. The quote happened on 306, but I had to go back a bit. And I think this was after a car bomb. Oh, this was after the hostage situation, mm -hmm. actually. So everyone, quote, everyone asked us the inevitable question, and my answer was yes. I knew I would cover another war. The hardest part about what happened to us in Libya was what we had put our loved ones through, but that had long been the excruciating price of the profession. My loved ones suffered, and I suffered when they suffered. Journalism is a selfish profession, but I still believed in the power of its purpose and hoped my family did too, end quote. So that one quote that really stood out for me was journalism is a selfish profession do you agree with this statement is this something that uh, occurred to you before you had read this or is this something that was uh, surprising to you as, as it was to me when I was um, in high school and, and working for the student newspaper uh, I was in journalism class and they had a local journalist come to um, speak to us you know how, how you do Mm -hmm. And one of the things he pointed out is that journalists tend to be married to their jobs. And that's what it made me think of the, 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 the journalism selfish profession and that it really does become you or you become part of it. And you are and, and you see it throughout the book. You are setting aside things that um, you normally, uh, I think a lot of other people would not set, would put first before the career. Mm. So things like relationships and family, and you are, the compassion or no compassion for your subject, you're, you're putting yourself in harm's way and you know you're doing that. And there is a, there is a bit of a selfishness to that in that as, um, in that you're kind of, you know, you're going for the glory there, but there is there has to be some sort of rush that you get out of it or something you get out of it. And it can be uh, from what she's shown in here. It can be a bit of a cutthroat business, too. So, yeah, I, I get what she I get what she means by that. Um, I don't think they're awful people, <laughs> you know, but I think it's just a very it can be very self-serving and it can be very self involved and it can self-consuming, too. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because up to that point, I thought that she was pretty selfless mm -hmm. uh, just because of the situations that she was putting herself in in order to report the stuff that was going on and, and how she was treating her subjects, that, that sort of thing. But yeah, if you pull back the curtain, you know, if there are people attached to you, it can be, yeah, pretty rough. I mean, there were two times, I think, that there was the accident and then, of course, the mm -hmm. hostage situation that 
I I think her family was certainly on pins and needles, and she got uh, the times, I guess, to call her mom, I think specifically her mom, and, Mm. you know, say I'm still alive. And so you kind of want, oh, man, why why are they going back into that and and leaving, leaving their loved ones at home? But at the same time, I think, well, there are many professions that are like that, aren't there? You know, mm-hmm. any of the, the people that serve in the armed forces or even locally, you know, police and things like that, you don't know if your loved one is going to come back. So... I, it's hard to say that, yeah, self, I guess, I mean, that's her own word, so I guess we can agree with her because that's that's what she thinks it is, but I think it's so, um, it's so much more than just that. You mm-hmm. kind of have to understand the context surrounding everything, um, but yeah, it, we'll, we'll certainly talk about, yeah, some of these relationships and things like that. Yeah, there's like a sense of mission or purpose. Um, I don't like to use the word calling when it comes to a job, but I think that's because I've heard too many people in my job say refer to it as calling, and I'm like, yeah, but that to me that calling, teaching, a calling um, is telling others that it's okay to not pay you. So, but there is a certain, I just that that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> but there is a sense of mission. Um, I think of a, a student journalist I read about in the uh, Stuyvesant High School newspaper that was published shortly after 9-11. And he took a ton of pictures. And he's, God, the kid's like 38 right now. Um, but uh, he talked about how he was seeing all this happen. And, you know, he, he his, one of his family members is a photojournalist. And he's like, yeah, I grabbed my camera and I went down and I started shooting. Uh, because it's just kind of like what I'd gotten, like, that's, that's, what was like in me. So this sense of mission that you're capturing this or that you're covering this or that you're, you're, you're creating something for the historical record is, is very, very important. Mm. And, uh, but she doesn't have the like sliminess of a paparazzi. Right. And I think that's, that's the, uh, like there's a distinction between her and like some scumbag who's like digging through, kim kardashian's garbage oh gosh yeah and even then i wouldn't use the word selfish i would certainly use something something else probably (laughs) just because they they don't seem to recognize what they're doing i don't know like it's their job but at the same time where's your sensitivity yeah yeah but yeah so just yeah something interesting that that she said that i had had not really thought about Mm mm-hmm well, you talked about, I guess we'll go off of what you said about uh, a call, a calling. Was this mm-hmm. a calling? So Adario speaks of the of her inability not to return to photojournalism. So she just has to, has, I basically just did a double negative there. Yeah. She has to always return. And that's a part of photojournalist's nature to go back even after experiencing trauma. So I wondered if this was nature or nurture. Do you think Adario was born to do this, or perhaps maybe if the birth was get, being given the Nikon, and it, there's just something in her that she would just always return, and um, she has the, the skill set and everything, or was it nurture and, and she had to get this way and after repeated practice? I, w- I wonder about this nature versus nurture thing quite a bit, especially when I teach Frankenstein, but because <gasps> um, we talk about it um, with this, I think there's something natural about it in that 
it's a uh, the the desire she has or the curiosity she has is the nature the nurture is entering the field so like the field gives her the outlet or the avenue to explore that and so the inability to not return to the to the to not go back in after something terrible that's because she has nurtured what was natural inside of her and has picked that up along the way. If she had chosen a different field that still fed that innate curiosity or that innate desire to share or capture things, um, she would have, she would have come back to that field after something bad had happened to. So I think, I think the, 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 the photojournalism becomes an outlet for that, for that trait. Mm-hmm. If I'm phrasing that correctly. Yeah. Yeah, I think the photojournalism itself, I think, is nature. I think just like people have um, certain artistic skills, Mm -hmm. that that is that's something that she had. And I think photography, you can train yourself to do something. But also, I think some people just don't have an eye necessarily. Yeah. And and I think that she has it. I, I feel like... The repeated return to even after trauma, I feel like it's got to be nurture because I don't know if anyone could just do that once. But I think it was like this incremental buildup to get to that point. I mean, she had this difficult childhood and then, you know, there were little little places along the way starting off in South America wasn't too intense. Um, New York City, you know, not too bad, but there was some things going down. But if she had leapt into a war zone and immediately gotten taken as a hostage, I don't I personally don't think I would have been able to <laughs> come back after that. I will just presume that maybe she would not have been able to, but I think it was like this incremental training that mm-hmm. um, kind of allowed her. And also just being with the the camera for so long mm-hmm. and, you know, all those subject, subjects that she had taken, I, I think she – there's such a passion there that I – even though I went through this trauma, I'm going to go back to do this thing that I love and this thing that I really believe in in order to get the word out. So I feel like it's like both, but the, but the trauma part, I think, kind of take, it sounds weird, but like takes practice just because you've got to kind of work, yeah, work through that. Yeah. There's also like a competitiveness within her. And I think this comes because uh, the, like the field is very competitive and she is a woman. So there's the sense of if I don't go back, I'm not going to get the work that I used to have. Mm, yep. Like I'll be damaged goods. Yep. And um, I think that also is a factor in it, too. Yeah. Which was a, a very real concern for her when she got pregnant or like mm-hmm. the consideration of her getting pregnant, yeah. which was such a, an amazing moment for her editor at that point, because I, I think it was a man had yeah. said, you know, take whatever time you need. Your place will be here when you get back. But I think that's because she had proven herself. If it had yeah. been someone greener on the field, not not necessarily. So I think that's a very realistic fear that she had. Well, it's a realistic fear because a lot of women have it, no matter what the field they're in. I mean, yeah. you know, there are there are a lot. Like my own wife was worried about like being. She was working for a startup at the time, and she ended up working during her maternity leave here and there for doing stuff because she wanted to make sure that she was staying relevant. You know, it, it's tough because there's. There is discrimination in ways that is more subtle than simply 
firing somebody for getting pregnant because that's technically illegal. Mm-hmm. There's mommy, what they call mommy tracking, um, which is basically that you get left out of advancement because, oh, well, you got to go take care of your kids. So they kind of, you kind of end up in a lower tier. There, there's a lot that a woman who is working or a working mother still has to deal with in this in our society when it comes to her job. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Adario shows that in in her own field through this, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, just to as a very quick side note, I have worked at a place where uh, pregnancy was called uh, disability, so you were on mm. disability <laughs> instead of maternity, short term disability. And it's actually my best friend who gave birth nine months ago. Oh. Um, she was also she was awful also off on disability, mm. so I, I don't explain that to me. Uh, but we're in it now. We might as well do this. Th- this was a big thing. This was one of the reasons why, of course, I, I chose it is that Lindsay Adario is, in fact, a woman. So uh, we've got five sub <laughs> questions in this in this section. But I just yeah, the topic is, you know, being a woman, a in the profession and b in these cultures and these locations that she is visiting. I don't even know. How do you want to tackle this exactly? I guess the profession first, because journalism now this it's not as much as it used to be, because like years and years ago, it was way more of a of a boys club than it is now. But it mm-hmm. still is to us to a big extent, a boys club. And she she shows that, you know, she's not she's not in a room full of women all the time. Right. You know, when she's talking with her colleagues, she has female colleagues and we see them, which is awesome. It's like, you know, she's not the lone female photojournalist. But at the same time, you know, there is a lot of. There's a lot of men working the field, and there's a lot of men in the upper echelons of everything, too. And with that can come sexism and misogyny. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's either blatant or just systemic. You know, So she, much like a lot of women, she has to put in more work, more physical, professional, and emotional labor than a lot of the men. And... I get the sense that she feels a lot of what a, the same as a lot of what a lot of women do in, in many fields of the struggle with perfection because, and this is true for um, people of color as well in, in white dominated professions, your mistake has much more of a, of an impact on your career or your job or your standing than the same mistake made by one of your white male colleagues. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I got that impression, you know, so, so I got that, I, I got the feeling that, that there was something she was worried about at times and, and making sure that she was on top of things and staying relevant and not afraid to turn down assignments and not afraid to go into the, because she had to, she had to measure in a sense, even if, even if it was only, only in her own head, I felt that she was being very honest about that, um, and there is a lot of honesty in this memoir. We can get to that when we talk about her relationships. Oh, yeah. So, but, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, the, there was certainly the annoying thing about being oh, – one of the annoying things about being a woman is that we constantly have to prove ourselves mm-hmm. for whatever reason. So, you know, personally, I can give you an anecdote because we're both nerds that it's gotten much better. But, you know, I would be tested at comic book stores or, you know, somewhere else. Like someone tried to trick me 
and say something about Wonder Woman and Flash being Marvel. And I was like, what, 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 why are you doing this? They're from DC. And then he was like shocked that I knew it. Or, you know, wondering if I need, like, being attended too much at a comic book store as if I don't know what I'm doing there. So, like, that kind of stuff, which just irks me. Like, just assume that if I need help, I'll ask and everything. My wife gets that as a sports fan. As a sports, sports fan? No, as a sports, oh, a sports fan. fan. Oh, so it's like, like, do you gets, know what offsides same, means? Geek culture and sports culture, it's the same thing for women. It's this, like, we're going to quiz you on all this crap because you're wearing, like, a, a, a Rangers jersey in a bar. And like, oh, you're not a real fan. You know, yeah. So totally, totally can understand. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know I'm what... I'm frustrated for you. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what that is about exactly. But I guess it's the boys' club. Like, they just... They mm-hmm. don't want you inside there, and so they're going to catch you <sighs> as much as possible. And so there were there were some sections that we saw that with Adario. I can't remember which specific place it was, but I remember she got there, and I, I think at this point in time she didn't know any of the people... Because normally she had built up enough relationships and, mm-hmm. and you saw repeated characters coming in and out of her life. But she was paired up with a journalist and I think he like took one look at her and basically was like not going to have anything to do with her. So she went off on her own and, and got good shots. And I think something happened. I'm sorry. It's so vague because I can't remember the details. But something happened. Oh, I remember what it was. She got into this place, and he thought, oh, yes, and she was sitting around with, like, members of the Taliban. Yeah. And then the guy that she was supposed to be with came in later and, like, gave her a nod of, like, approval that, okay, I guess you're okay because you're able to do this even though you're a woman. So, yeah, just, like, not even willing to help someone out. And you're supposed to be partners. Like, she was paired up with this person because she was the eyes and he was the pen. And so that kind of stuff was absolutely ridiculous. But, yeah, she definitely, unfortunately, especially because of these photos are going to be seen, you know, nationwide, if not worldwide. Yeah, yeah, you've got to own that. You've got to prove to us that that you've got it instead of, you know, just by talent. And it's a double-edged sword, too, because a moment like that where she gets the approval from that guy is really important. Because it helps get access that she needs to other jobs in her profession, right? So she's if she's in with the boys, that helps her. But at the same time, as someone who clearly is, you know, a feminist and someone who is empowered, she's like, I don't need your approval. I know how to do my job and I do my job well. Mm -hmm. So it's 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 a catch twenty two, right? You know, like you you need it, but you know you don't you shouldn't need it. Yeah. And and that's uh, I can see I can feel the frustration. in that. Yeah. I mean, t- sometimes ladies, I, I think whoever is listening to the show, I feel like only men write in. So I don't even oh. know if any women listen. But yeah, sometimes you unfortunately have to play the game if you yeah. want to survive or if you want to get ahead. Yeah. And so as frustrating as that is, you know, until the world changes. Yeah. You just have to kind of go along with it, which is is really hard. But Oh, well, we've got a quote here, Mm -hmm. so I guess we can do this one. So, when asked by Belinda Luscombe, do female photojournalists shoot war differently, (laughs) Adario replied, on the front lines, it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, so long as you keep up. But I think that in the Muslim world, where I work a lot, I have better access to women and children because the society is segregated by gender. 
What do you think? Do you expect women to work differently than men? <laughs> On a general level, I don't. But I think there's a certain perspective that women might bring. I, you know, it, it's I, I think it's I think it depends on the individual situation too. So, like in that quote she has where she says, "But I think in the Muslim world where I work a lot, I have better access to women and children because the society is segregated by gender." That is where I say, then yes, I expect a difference in the approach to work, but it's because of the circumstances. Yeah. But in general, in most professions, really all, I mean, I don't expect much of a difference in terms of, I don't know, like, you know, there's, there is an objectivity that I have, like, as, like, you know, how, like, you know, you're going to do this this way because you're a woman is not a phrase that enters my head, mm-hmm. even though you and I might have different approaches because we're just individuals. Yeah. You know, and although, but at the same time, I do understand that your perspective as a woman informs some of the way that you approach your job. Right. The same way that if you were a black woman or a Latina or if you were an Asian man or would inform the way you approach a situation or your job because it's just part of who you are. So I can't completely dismiss your identity from it, but I don't want to like stereotype. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I find it. I, I found this question online, mm-hmm. to be honest, but um, it's kind of a silly question. And it's interesting that it's coming from a woman mm. that. In what way? In what way would they work differently, or you know, shoot differently, or would f- f- photographs look differently as if a female eye is different than a male eye? It's just, yeah, it's just about the individual, and and like you're saying, um, how maybe something is attacked. But even if I look at athletes, mm. the goal is the same. You're you want to win games, and they're training, and you know they may have different foot skills female football players may not fall on the ground and uh wriggle around as much as male football players in order to try to get a call a yellow card or something but other than that i mean they're working the same way in my opinion there are male swimmers who are looking at katie ledecky going damn (laughs) i mean it's just you know and it's like you know you train right you're right you train you practice absolutely um, some, it's weird to me, quick tangent, it is weird to me that in certain team sports that are separated by, by sex, like women's soccer and men's soccer and lacrosse and stuff, that there are slightly different rules. Or like, why do women lacrosse players not wear helmets, but they have to wear, I think they finally stopped, but they still have to wear like skorts, yeah. like field hockey players and stuff like that. I think in women's hockey, I, at the beginning, I don't think there was any checking. I don't know if they've, if they've allowed body checking, but it's like, why? <laughs> yeah, like, what? I know that you're trying to limit the potential for injury in general, but like, you know, why, why be so ginger and stuff? Or, or like, why do women's tennis matches, why are women's tennis matches shorter? It's fewer sets to win. So it's just, or, or the ladies tee, like, it's just, it's weird the inequity in, in, in sports when it comes to the same sport, but different, but men and women. And you're just like, you know, why, why are there separate rules here and there? Yeah. So, but that's a total, again, tangent. Back to food. Yeah. I'm sure we could. That could be episode 80. Stepping off episode. my soapbox. Yeah, but I, I do like the fact that she does have, she has different access. And it's nice because it seems mm. like she has all the access, whereas men probably wouldn't be able to take photographs of the women and children. 
but she is able to kind of sneak her way into some male gatherings. So she she seems to <laughs> be perhaps better than a male photojournalist in that way that she can see everything. It's so important that she gives us pictures of Muslim women in situations that are not dire or like I'm trying to find a picture <laughs> so that we get something that's not necessarily um, like the, she had the, the women of jihad series for the New York times magazine, November 20, 2001. This is after page 93. So it's like the, it's the, the two page spread on 94 and 95. And you have three photos and uh, one is uh, three or four women just sitting in reading. And then there's another with a girl with uh Flowers in her hair it looks like she, they're getting ready for some sort of celebration, and then there's one of a of a woman kissing her son, and it's just like these very again these human moments that were rare in the pursuit of the war on terror, mm-hmm. you know, because because we the royal we and or 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 the government or certain arms of society or segments of society wanted the permanent image of Muslims to be the, the bearded man screaming and holding an AK 47, you know, and then just these very, uh, these particular images that are meant to scare us. Mm-hmm. And, um, and this, this takes that away because it, it, it I don't know. It just, it, it, it shows the humanity be like, it, it, it forces you to think a little bit more about like what, actually is going on in the country where she's shooting or photographing these pictures as opposed to, you know, the very stereotypical, you know, way we, we tend to view, you know, we tend to, because, because a lot of times people in our society tend to look at um, anybody from the Middle East, whether it be Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, or, or, or um, like Egypt, as like one in the same, the same way a lot of people, those same people look at anybody from Latin America as like quote Mexican, you know, like, so, so doing that and, and going into the individual places and seeing those is really, really important. Yeah, absolutely. I did. I think this was just a comment, mm-hmm. but with our readings, I, I think this is possibly the most danger that one of our leads has been in. Yeah. <laughs> because she, it, no. Nonfiction. Nonfiction, yeah. yes. I was going to say because she was a woman, but I don't think that's necessarily correct because she was in the same amount of, of danger as her compatriots were. Yeah, she really the car accident and the and the hostage situation. She was with men, and they were all in the same amount of danger. Um, there was a heightened possibility of a little more danger to her in the form of sexual assault. Yes. But at the same time, they were all at risk for being killed. Yes. So. Yeah. Ooh, yes. Because I think with Wild, mm-hmm. we, and even, you know, when I think about <laughs> Bill Bryson mm-hmm. and his friend, like, they were pretty okay. You know, there might have been wildlife, maybe danger, but I don't think we feared too much for them until we got to that section <sighs> of the 
the the murder that he encountered. Yeah. With Wild, you know, we were kind of trepidatious about, you know, a woman being on her own and there's just those two guys that we were worried about. And then the previous one with Jack Hit that we had mm-hmm. just done, I don't think there was really any danger that he encountered. I didn't get a sense of it anyways, but he was mostly in a group. So this is like the first time that basically every location she goes to, there's a high threat of danger, which I yeah. thought was um, pretty interesting. You have to go back to our coverage of night to find someone. True. In and Ben, that was a um, very specific circumstance. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she yeah she wasn't a lot of danger. Yeah. So yeah, culture wise, I think there were just mm-hmm. certain moments here that we mentioned. You mentioned making friends at the Afghan embassy with uh, Mohammed. Yeah. I think that was, his, I think name. That was his name. And that was she was certainly testing the waters and, and wondering if he was trying to trick her. Yeah. But then they actually become friends, and and he because he's in danger with the, some of the stuff and the discussions that they're having. Yeah. So he puts himself out there. I thought it was very interesting after some of her harrowing experience is that she's in an exit row for <laughs> Afghan air and she's asked to move because she's a woman. Yeah. And she cannot handle the, I guess, getting people out. The responsibility of you. Yes, if that were to And they put some, happen. like, elderly man in her place or something. Ah, uh, yes, yeah. absolutely. So there are certainly some moments that we see, oh, she's, she's yeah. treated differently because she is a woman potentially poorly mm-hmm. and you see her react because i would have personally been affronted if i were asked to move from an exit seat yeah but i think that she handles that very gracefully because there's no you can't really care that up um because no. <laughs> i think you're just gonna get kicked off of the yeah. airplane and i think she just recognizes like that is the culture and and sometimes you just kind of have to uh go with that which actually this brings up i think i wanted to actually talk about this we um as a connection to quinoa i got the the guys over there donovan and harry to watch midsummer or midsummer and we one of the questions i asked them was you know to what extent do you go along with the culture that you're in and to what extent do you kind of like fight against it and i guess i I could ask that question here as well because i think in this instance like she recognizes where she is and she is living in that culture and i think she respects that she is you know stranger so she's going to act appropriately do you feel like that is the the right thing to do in that moment um so i'll just throw that you know question out you know to what extent as a photojournalist do you completely behave with the culture whether you believe in what they're doing or not or are there certain instances where you should push against it because of your background and what you believe in I would say that with the airplane thing, it's like one of those you have to fight, you have to pick your battles type of situations. And I think she she knows that you're right. It's not a moment where you can really care in it up, especially, you know, especially when like when's the next time I'm going to be able to get on a flight Um, with Mohammed. It's it's not only, you know, testing the waters and making friends, but it's also kind of greasing the wheels, because one of the problems that she talked about quite often was the slowness of bureaucracy, which mm. so many can relate to, like, you know, she's got to get papers processed. She's impatient. How many more days am I going to be spending here? You know, and or the 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 strip search, like, you know, the strip oh, search at yeah. the Palestinian Israeli border. 
And she rightfully stood up for herself there and, and lodged the complaint because she was like, no, this is not fair. And this is and I was mistreated and they knew, you know, and 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 that was cruel. So um, but I think she I, I think if you're if you're, you know, and I'm, I'm you know, judging from my very comfortable point of view here because I'm not a journalist, <laughs> but if you're going into these places in order to um, cover the world or whatever, you do have to get savvy about what, you know, what the culture is like and how to ingratiate yourself among the people there. Because again, it's access too, right? If you're, you know, if you come in being the ugly American, you're not going to get your, you're not going to be able to do your job well. Right. So I think that, I think that she, she is really, really intuitive about when the right time is to push and when it is not. Yeah. I agree with you. I, yeah, and I think it's no, it's 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 hard. I mean, obviously, Midsommar is like an extreme example of when do you go along with culture, or the you know the place that you're at, and when do you not. But I think in nearly all of the situations that she's in, I think she needs to adopt or at least behave culturally appropriate because if she doesn't, it's her life. Mm-hmm. So I I think I agree with you. Pick your battles. Even though I was super annoyed that she got asked to leave, yeah. I I totally the exit row. I totally understood why she wouldn't make any uh, sort of issue about it. I think she just asked like why, which mm-hmm. I would have as well. Yeah. And then you just kind of have to look around you and be like, okay, if we were in America and Delta Airways decided or whatever decided yeah. to say that, then I I probably would pull a Karen. Oh yeah. But um. <laughs> Not to say, I mean, our country's slipping backwards already, so maybe that'll happen to me yet. But uh, Afghan air, absolutely not. Mm -hmm. So I I think that she behaves as is. I think if there's, you know, if there's something happening that I could potentially help or prevent is when... Man, that's scary. I'm just thinking, you know, if there if there was a woman being stoned in the street, mm. what would I do? Like that's that's kind of something that I would think because I, I could I could I could help, but that I mean, yeah, I the, think I would probably also be stoned too. So you're just making you're making a choice. So in that moment, I think you're going against um, the culture because of course there are stonings and everything, but mm-hmm. because that's just like something that's shaping against your own sensibilities. But you also know that in doing that, you will be, I guess, kind of martyring yourself as well. Or yeah, you struggle with the idea of having to be a passive bystander. Absolutely. Yeah, which is, like I said, way back in the beginning about that photographer who had seen that young child, mm-hmm. the carrion behind him. Yeah, so it's tough. I mean, this is not an easy profession by no means. Uh, anything else about being, yeah, her, her experiences as a woman? Beyond what we're going to be getting into about her relationships, I would say no. Okay. I will say that whole section in – I actually mentioned this. I wrote it down at one point. When she's in Afghanistan Afghanistan and the Karengal Valley where they're like in a firefight, Mm -hmm. I was really impressed with how the the military leadership treated her and her colleague Elizabeth. Mm -hmm. I just thought there was like respect – uh, really shown between those two as well as all the troops and everything and that was like a really tense situation but the and they're also they're just uh moving on actually there is something because we mentioned in wild 
about periods hmm. and I was waiting for her for Lindsay to actually bring it up and she only did at one point in time and I think it was during that particular section that I get she said I won't remember the quote exactly but basically like her body kind of intuited what sort of situations uh, she was in. It might have been when she was a hostage mm -hmm. that um, it basically knew kind of the dire straits and, and she didn't menstruate. But there were some times that I really wanted to know how she was dealing with a period. But yeah. I guess we'll never know. I don't think I can email it. <laughs> that's, that's a good it's question. It's too personal. Yeah, but, especially yeah. when you're when you're in a – you know, it's one thing to do an assignment for a couple of days – and then be jetted back across the country or whatever. So if yeah. you're, if you're on, you know, if you, you get your period, you can pack some, you know, you, cause you usually, uh, a number of women, I don't want to say all women, but a number of women, um, know enough about their cycles to know when it's supposed to come. Right. Yeah. And so therefore, if they're like, Oh crap, I think I'm supposed to get my period next week. I better pack some stuff that, you know, they do that. But this is being embedded in a place like Afghanistan yeah. or Iraq or something for like weeks or months. And yeah. so that, that's an interesting question. Like, how do you handle that? Or is there, is there a supply chain that you can access? Um, are there things that you, are there, you know, are there stores? Um, if you're in with the United States military, do they have a PX that you can, because I would imagine that female combat soldiers have to deal with the same thing. So, you know, if they're on post wherever they are, they're, they're, um, they're deployed. Uh, they have to have access to some of those things at some point, you know, like, yeah. so, so perhaps, but when you're in deep Afghanistan, mm -hmm. yeah, like, what are you, are you, because I know there's like period underwear you can wear. There's, True. you know, maybe are you wearing that? Are you, because you know what, like, are you doing it in a way that are you preparing yourself in a way that's efficient and sanitary and does not have you packing an enormous amount of stuff? Yeah. I, I think in that hostage situation, I think it certainly was this. And because I remember one of the people came in, they had gotten them stuff when they were finally at like a little apartment or something. Mm -hmm. And he had asked her if she needed anything with like kind of in a lascivious nature, like, do you need pads? Da, 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 da. And, and, uh, she said, yeah, that she didn't need anything. So I guess they could have, but that I, he was taking some weird pleasure out of asking. Uh, I know that, you know, yeah, our bodies kind of do weird stuff, speaking of, like, female bodies, and in, I think, stressful situations, it certainly gets messed up, mm -hmm. and I'm even thinking about, like, female athletes. Yeah, um, like gymnasts, that, especially. Absolutely. So it's not, like, regular, so to speak. And I think potentially in some of these conflict areas that the anxiety and stress probably shut down a lot. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, I do. I agree with you. I mean, even, you know, you mentioned the period underwear. Um, you know, those need to be cleaned. And so it's just like, man, what, how is she doing this? Because I'm just thinking about Elizabeth in that situation where she was pregnant and I think having to go frequently and they have those little little bushes, maybe. Yeah. But, you know, how do you do that, unfortunately? So that's like the, the one time that you kind of want uh, male plumbing is mm -hmm. <laughs> if you're in these situations uh, like peeing yeah, and then no true. menstruation. But you just, yeah, you just got to deal with it. I can only imagine it's similar to 
Cheryl, who, um, if you recall, she used uh, the sponge. But then, yeah, you just kind of wonder how she was cleaning it, especially because water was sparse, and yeah. you're wanting to use that to drink. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of whoo crazy stuff. So I feel like more more you know mad respect for for mm-hmm. women in these fields because they have to deal with something more than than men do which is yeah it's just crazy uh this of course sets up our next series of episodes which are about the collected works of judy bloom <laughs> man let me say that Maybe judy bloom... forever and then are you there god it's me margaret and oh my god stella's gonna you throw know... me a bone with tales of a fourth grade nothing because that's the one i read a in fourth grade nothing that might that's the boy one <laughs> Oh, that's a boy one. Okay. If we, I don't know. I've read maybe like one Judy Bloom. I've but read someone... two and they were both like Tales of the Grade Nothing and Super Fudge. So they were like okay. the boy, the boy forward ones. Well, tell me, d- does she in the ones that you recall? This, <laughs> this from is what like I understand, a weird now, side from, trail. From what I understand, because I've read about it in like, you know, on AL, uh, the American Library Association website about like, you know, Bandon Talent's books, I believe it's Forever that has very frank discussions of menstruation. Okay, and, and girls menstruation? Getting, and, and teenage girls getting their periods, yeah. Yeah, and then also what, ma- masturbation. I believe so, too. I You know, it's, it's very... Because they were written in what the seventies, I think, and um, and it was just a time of yeah, it was just a very for its time, um, even now to a certain extent, um, a very frank, very honest look at it in a way that was not part of young adult literature. No, I'm surprised those have been banned. <laughs> They Man. they are they they end up in challenge books and stuff lists oh, okay. and stuff like that. Just, I yeah. want to say that maybe not recently because there are so many other. I think some of the older books kind of slide through because um, and don't get on the radar of like you know the I don't know Alliance for Defending Freedom or whatever nut job group is out there right now, but uh, because they're not as contemporary and they're not as in the forefront. So, but like the sit the stuff sitting on the on the shelves of a of a high school or a junior high school and you're just like, yeah, you can go read this book. And, you know, um, I think there are a number of people in my generation, uh, women who really, uh, give Judy Bloom a lot of credit because it, it, they did learn quite a bit, you know, from those books, but yeah. that's another discussion for another time. If we ever decide. I know. To yeah. I just wondered if you had seen that because it was in the one I read and I was like, what? I thought this was like a preteen anyways. Okay, where do we even go from here? Yeah, well, I guess we were talking about well, uh, pregnancies. Yes. So here's a controversial question. By working at her career while pregnant, was Adario, and I could even say Elizabeth, her colleague in yeah. Afghanistan, in the Kringle Valley, do you feel like they were taking unnecessary risks? No, because especially her, I don't remember how far along Elizabeth was, but Adario was, uh, Lindsay was working through the early stages of her pregnancy. There are people, there are athletes who have done things. There are actresses, dancers. There are people who have done physically demanding things at the beginning of pregnancy and just kind of kept an eye on things. Um, you know, unless there, it's medically necessary for you to stay in bed all day, you can do you know, um, you can do quite a bit and live quite a normal life when you're first pregnant. The later you get, that actually, uh, you know, <laughs> you get so pregnant that you don't want to do anything. 
but I don't think she was taking an unnecessary risk. I think she knew the risks yeah, and was prepared for them and was very rational about them. I would agree. And I, I might cut this out, but it just is like so contemporary, I guess, with, with what has been going on in our nation and just that we, we care about one of those more than the other mm-hmm. one. I, I don't think that people are asking this question because of uh, Lindsay, but because of the child and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Because Lindsay, Lindsay is constantly taking risks. Mm-hmm. It's just that now there's there's someone there's a co-pilot with her. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I wouldn't I wouldn't say so either. It's not like she's getting up in the middle of a firefight and running forward. I, I think both of them recognized when it was time to stop. Mm-hmm. Um, both Elizabeth as as well as Lindsay, and and she even it's not like she was willingly walking through that X-ray machine. You know, she saw yeah, could I have a pat down instead or whatever it was. Um, so she, I, I think she was being considerate of her co-pilot the entire time, and I think as any woman should be allowed to do just because uh she's pregnant doesn't mean she needs to stop living you know how Mm -hmm. she's living now the the caveat being like if you're snorting cocaine or whatever maybe you should stop doing that with the child but but yeah i mean she's just doing her profession and she continues to do that she was always clear-headed and um as safe as can be in these situations and she continued to do that yeah Yeah. I mean, it's not like she's eight and a half months pregnant, dropping herself into Basra. I mean, you know, right. bottling around with a camera, you know, no. And, but yeah, you're right. Okay. So we're, we're starting to wrap this up. Uh, it turned out you were right, Tom. I mean, knock on wood, but I was worried about this episode because <laughs> my questions didn't seem that good. But um, Tom helped me out and, and I think we're having a good discussion. So mm-hmm. let's discuss adario's kidnapping slash being a hostage in libya what gave her the fortitude to survive adario did survive of course mm-hmm. but people died as a result of working with her how does she live with that and could you personally live with that that is tough now i should we should also mention that much like wild the book opens with a prologue Correct. of the kidnapping and then goes back and comes back to the kidnapping um, about three quarters of the two thirds of the way through the book, much like Wilde has that instance where she loses her boot. And um, I mean, it's not one for one, but I just kind of like it the same sort of structure. I want to say that because she's clearly scared the entire time. I think part of her fortitude to survive came from her experience as a photojournalist, because by this time she was a veteran photojournalist. So she's been in situations not this horrific, but she's been in situations where she knows how to, she knows how to behave and such. I wa- also want to say that thoughts of her family help get her through, you know, the, that idea that, you know, it's, it's very cliche, but the idea that yeah, I have something to live for and I want to make sure that everybody knows I'm okay and mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And then and her, also her savvy and, and working relationships between back and forth between people and such is, uh, is very, very helpful. It, I can't imagine what it's like to live with that though. And, and I can imagine that it is a trauma. Yeah. And knowing that, and, and I, I would imagine that on some level, even if she's not responsible for the death of the people who were with her, she feels a sense of responsibility because she, like a survivor's guilt. 
I, I wouldn't even begin to explain how you how you live with it because I've never experienced something like that. But mm-hmm. I, I, I can imagine you could, but it, it's it's incredibly tough. Yeah, and and I think potentially that that gets back to our selfish quote unquote question because mm-hmm. yeah, she does go back into it even though people died as as a result of of being with her in particular. I think the driver in that instance. Yeah. But I I, th- I feel like a big reason why she I mean obviously I think internally it's it's who you are if you're able to withstand some of that. Mm-hmm. But also the fact that she had other people with her and they would do their Ooh, maybe daily, at least daily checks of like who's here, and they would yeah. off, you know, each other, because I think it's a completely different ball game when you are alone as a mm-hmm. as a POW or a hostage. But the fact that there are other people there with you, enduring the same stuff, I think gives you a hope that you'll all make it out together, or at least you have someone to commiserate with. And that that's experiencing the same thing you're experiencing. So how does she live? Well, I'm, I'm sure she thinks about it. How do you live with that? That always sounds like, how do you live with yourself? <laughs> I'm sure she, it's hard. I mean, I'm sure she never forgets those people, just like she probably never forgets some of the painful subjects that she's taken photographs of. Mm-hmm. And um, could I live with it? Oh, yeah, that's hard. Kind of being in that situation. I, I don't know. I don't know. I I think it goes back to my nature-nurture situation. Mm -hmm. If I were just thrust into that situation, I don't think so. I'd be able to. But um, because she had experienced, you know, some death in the field before, uh, not that she was numb to it, but just that um, I think she understood the cost of what she was doing. Mm -hmm. And perhaps it was, yeah, she's able to to kind of keep them with her but, but move on. Yeah. Yeah. And perhaps, you know, for some, you know, you might say that it, it you know, let them not have died in vain and let me continue to, to fight the fight with mm-hmm. my lens kind of thing. Too. Yeah. yeah. But, but that certainly is. Yeah. It's, it's it's that's a hard question. So then, of course, we can go to this emotional toll. And I wonder something that, of course, I, I didn't know. There are several things I didn't know about this profession, but I didn't realize the emotional toll that photojournalism actually takes um, on the photojournalist, especially in some dire circumstances like war, famine. Did you know some of this? So we just see that I was going to say it runs rampant. Affairs <laughs> run rampant. There are there's a lot of of, of there are many affairs mm-hmm. between the people that are embedded, and yeah, divorces happen. Because you know people are gone. Yeah. Um, there's their drug drug use and drinking that kind of stuff. And then of course, in particular for Adario, we see her relationships throughout, and many of which are doomed. And they're also with codependent men, as I think uh, you have put. So that one guy. I guess the like what'd really, you say? That one guy was like really codependent. <laughs> The one from Mexico. I think right? so, yeah. And yet he was yeah. cheating on her the entire time. Oh my gosh, yeah. And that, yeah, that was. So I guess first question is just, did you realize that this kind of stuff was going on? Um, and then, yeah, I'm not really sure about kind of the second question, but I, I do wonder, I was thinking about this earlier today, and even I think when I was reading it, that I was comparing these affairs with Cheryl's affairs, uh-huh. and how we certainly had that, we had that discussion about kind of the morality of it, and our, is, is it in our right to, to judge, you know, what these people are doing, 
And so I wonder if there's like a similar thing over here. Did these affairs feel differently <laughs> to you than, you know, with Cheryl? Did you have any like pro or were, were you just like empathy full 100% and understanding where these were coming from? That's kind of, I think, what I was considering. So take that as you will. I think I think when it comes to realizing the emotional toll, I don't think I realized it. But when I did, it made total sense. Mm-hmm. Like it was like, oh, of course, especially like it's it's like it's like a soldier or something seeing the same sort of thing. It's a trauma response, you know, and, and there's there's an emotional toll on that. I don't want to judge her for relationships, considering that would I put her in a double standard with men who would do the same thing. Sure. And I don't believe in doing that because i think it's it could be it is it seems like she was just kind of living a a life of yeah it might have been a little selfish but there were there would have been men who had kind of flitting relief fleeting relationships and things like that and you know but the job came first and and what have you and um so i can't judge her for that because she's a woman and i think that the affairs the drinks the drinking the drugs uh, you know, it it tracks with me because if it is a means of escape, in some cases, it's a very toxic means of escape uh, because sometimes, you know, habits and addictions develop. But I can see the coping mechanisms at work through some of the things she describes. And one of the things I really appreciate about this book is that she is incredibly honest about who she is and and and, and her own flaws as a person mm-hmm. that she's not a hero in this sense you know she is an incredibly flawed person who is an incredibly remarkable journalist and photojournalist and and a remarkable person but the fact that she is so willing to just bear herself out there is is what part of what makes her remarkable she's not tooting her own horn Mm-hmm. so much yeah i feel like she and cheryl Strayed would get along well yeah you know with the experiences and and mm-hmm. who they are i think that'd be pretty uh yeah yeah i agree with you that especially with yeah she she kind of puts it out there and and she puts out you know what this profession is and and how they kind of deal with it and and i can well i again uh, personally would not like to partake in any of that i understand you know that it is kind of escapism Mm -hmm. and you're with these people and i think trauma brings people together in really heightened emotional states and so you want to share that in however way you are uh, able to do i mean i did feel really bad about it in regards to kind of the spouses that I guess are unaware of yeah. what's going on that kind of did hit me differently I think than Cheryl's tales mm-hmm. I don't know if it's because maybe all of her, the guys that she was with probably well we didn't really know but seemed single it was just she was the one who's cheating but yeah it's also just really sad I, I think also um with with the drinking and the drugs and i just kind of worried i worried for these people Mm -hmm. and so it's interesting how she's saying it's a selfish profession profession but it seems like a lot of these people are making like really personal high-stakes sacrifices yeah you know their health their well-being Um, yeah yeah and i don't see that her or any of those people's flaws or their flawed behavior comes from a place of cruelty toward the people who they end up hurting you know I think it's almost like self-preservation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Almost, yeah. Okay. So I think we just have two questions left, and of course, then the the big one. 
we see Adario earn a number of accolades and advancements in her field, like getting to do a long-term assignment rather than quick turnaround coverage, the MacArthur Grant, etc. Yet there is an unease or insecurity that comes with them. Is that a question? Oh, uh, I think but I, in the... <laughs> I, might have, I might have heard the question by accident. That's okay. Uh, but in the book, we see work that's definitely deserving of awards. So why doesn't why doesn't she think she deserves any of it? Because she wins a Pulitzer, and she's surprised that she's on the, the like her name is on the Pulitzer. I think that it's one of those weird little humble things of you don't expect to win awards, and some of it comes from imposter syndrome because we all have it, you know, mm-hmm. and, and we never expect to be you know, like, especially when you're a, when you're a workhorse of a, of, in a profession, like, you know, you do so much work and you just keep doing it the way you do it. There's a genuine surprise at getting, at getting awards. Um, and, uh, you know, like the MacArthur grant, she's just has total imposter syndrome over that. She's like, are they going to turn around and give this back to me? Because of, like, you know, the things that had happened over the course of the year afterward, the long-term assignment is a huge deal because it was for like National Geographic or like one of those magazines or something that allowed her to go to, I think it was Darfur for like six months to a year without having to worry about like filing a story. Mm-hmm. Or filing pictures for a deadline when she had, and so she was not living on the day to day, and she could really do this sort of long term piece that is a privilege, really, in in that industry because people, you know, it's not an afford. You know, photojournalism doesn't exactly rake in the big bucks, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I think I think she doesn't think she deserves any of it because she doesn't see. I don't know if she fully grasps the impact of her of her work as, as good as she knows her work is. I think she she doesn't um, it it doesn't she doesn't fully realize it. Do you think part of it is also because she's a woman? I think that's part of it too. That the 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 sexism and misogyny ingrained in all of us, like you know, even affects her and thinks that like, well, you know, like why you know why would I you know why would I be deserving any of this? I'm just mm-hmm. so. Yeah, I think I agree with with all of what he <laughs> says. So I don't think I'll add to it. I, I did find the MacArthur phone call very endearing because mm-hmm. I think she like had to double check like, are you are you really calling? And I think didn't she like do a Google search or something afterwards just to verify <laughs> yes, that this was who it was? Yeah, she looked at the phone number. Being punked. Yeah, yeah. So I thought that was an endearing section but you know if it is because of you know being a woman or it's just super sad that you know you can't trust that you deserve good things to to happen to you or you deserve something that you've worked hard for Mm -hmm. here's hoping that we can get ourselves out of that and (laughs) that we do if we work hard that we should have you know some things come to us that are good but okay oh our last one this is our last of four books with a motif of a journey, although this wasn't uh, this one isn't about hiking like the other three. Other than the literal journeys to various places in the world, what if any metaphorical or emotional or any other internal journey is taking place here? What is she trying to get out of it or what does she get out of it? This is a tough question. I want to go with the idea, the better understanding of the world and the people and 
we as readers, I think, get her compassion and, and hopefully share that compassion. There's a personal fulfillment that happens because it's a story of her life and not just like one particular journey, which is a little bit different as well. Um, you know, all those were, were specific trips over the course of several months as opposed to this was just like 20, 30 years. Yeah. So by the end of this journey that she is on, she is you get the sense that she is very happy with who she is professionally and personally. And not that you as a woman need a husband and a kid to be happy, but clearly her relationship with her husband uh, and then her and then her son brings her happiness that she had wanted, you, you know, that she had wanted. And and the the what she's earned through her profession and the fact that she hasn't really had to give much up in order to have both of those things is or she's given up some things, but she's also been able to work and have the family like, you know, there's just there's a lot she's been able to do. So I think that the personal fulfillment and happiness was her journey. I don't think it's like a, it's like one of those cheesy self-help, like, you know, you can have it all type of books, though. But, yeah, that's my best answer. Yeah, I, I think I, I am down with your answer for sure. This is interesting because, of course, in the previous episode, I was like, what was Jack Hitt's reason <laughs> for going on that pilgrimage? Uh, I don't know said, either. My reason was to find a reason. I thought, okay, yeah. you're done. You're done. Uh, I think for her, it b- besides or, or beyond or in addition to what you had said, I think getting out of her worldview and seeing what other worldviews are, mm-hmm. and yeah, seeing some of those emotional uh, emotions and beauties and, and horrors of what other people consider ordinary life. Whereas her idea in Connecticut would be one thing, someone in Cuba would be another thing, someone mm-hmm. in Darfur would be another, that, that sort of thing. So I think broadening her worldview and also paying it forward and also broadening other people's worldview by using her lens to capture that and, and, and spread the word. So she's definitely, I think, on a mission. I think, yeah, she does find <laughs> fulfillment and happiness finally, which, you know, I was wondering, oh, will she be okay? Mm-hmm. Because of some of these relationships that she is in and, and uh, that fail her. And I guess that she fails as well. And so to finally find this this guy who seems pretty good and who also allows her to be who she is, because I think a problem with the the guy from Mexico was that he said that she loved photography more than she loved him, mm-hmm. which possibly was true. But I, I think she's able to kind of equate um, those loves with, with this Count or Duke, whoever it was, um, that she ends up marrying, and, and he certainly understands uh, what she's going through. So, yeah, I feel like she's almost able to find yeah, fulfillment, like mm-hmm. find her full being, because she has this profession she loves. Um, she's doing something that I think helps other people out. Um, in a passive way, of course, with her subjects, but for people like us looking at these images. And then, yeah, she's able to find a partner that can, I guess, do life with her rather than her making space for him or him completing her. They're they're just living alongside of each other, and, and she can hold on to her loves, and he can do the same. Yeah. So, yeah, I think so. Okay. Anything else on this? No. Okay. Tom, <laughs> is this required reading? 
You know, I want to say yes uh, for the perspective of what is it like to be a career photojournalist, um, a woman in this field, and for like a, hist- a history of the last 20, 30 years. You know, she wasn't exactly looking at things that are obscure, trivial items in our contemporary history. She was in major events and saw how they affected parts of the world in ways that we don't necessarily get through history textbooks or, or television coverage or, or fictionalized accounts and things like that. So I I think this is a good addition to that, the building, ever-growing canon of, of works, uh, historical works about the United States and the world since uh, the turn of the century, especially since the events of 9-11. Yeah, I, it's interesting because this seems to be... Well, both of us have lived during this time, mm-hmm. and this is definitely, like, my... I didn't know as much about Darfur, but I remember going to UVA and Darfur coming up and people doing different things for that. Yeah. But we are beyond... Now, with the, the, the students that we teach, they're now born after 9-11. They are. So, yeah, it's it's definitely, I think, something that... Yeah, all of the above, photojournalism, realizing what that culture is like, that profession, being a woman, not only in that profession, but in the cultures that she's traveling, and then also seeing these conflicts that now students that we're teaching have been born after mm-hmm. and have no idea. And I don't know what history books are doing. I don't know how, how they're updated, but this is also, an I feel like, an objective, mostly, mm-hmm. uh, look into these conflicts as well, whereas, of course, we know there's always some sort of bent to um, history texts. Yeah. So I agree with you. Yeah, I think this would make for an interesting course text. Uh, you know, if you were to do your your um, what'd you say? It was a photojournalist class that you taught, right? I taught journalism. We did a photojournalism unit. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah to have that alongside of it, because I yeah. think people when they think journalism, they only think about writing. Mm-hmm. But there, there's something really special here that I think could inform a, a great deal. Yeah. Awesome. All right, so I'll uh, be talking a little bit about feedback, which we don't have. Uh, oh, no, we don't have any feedback. But I do want to give a shout-out to our Scholastic Book buddy, Robert Ward. He's been great about sharing the memes, the links to various things he spots that are related to our show and our episodes. Um, I know we both appreciate them. We have a laugh at some of them, and we uh, would love to see them keep coming. But we'd love to hear from you guys about what you think of this episode or any past episodes. So don't forget to hit us up in the emails and the Twitters and the Facebooks and stuff. And I can close it out by saying next episode is episode 70. So every 10th episode, we do a tangent special. And this time, we're just going to kind of take the theme that we've been working with, which is, I believe, just journeys and expanding on it both personally and talking about how this is handled as a subgenre or genre in literature, both fiction and nonfiction. So uh, come back next month for that one. And in the meantime, thank you very much for listening and take care. I don't think I have anything funny <laughs> to say this time. I just don't think I do. Was there anything funny I could say? I don't think there is. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Good night. Good night. Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two true freaks. That's two true freaks.
If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash required reading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review in iTunes? If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to twotruefreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcasts. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode.